Welcome, Dan, to the Building and Growing podcast. Uh, we're very grateful to have you here today. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Uh, always good to uh, chew the fat with you, Lucas. Excellent. Thanks so much. Dan um, joins us from Integrated Finance. He's one of the co-founders there. Do you want to start off by giving us a bit of an intro to yourself and uh, to the company? Sure. So uh, I'm Daniel Cronin. I'm a co-founder and COO slash CCO, or if, if we're in Silicon Valley, it would be CRO uh, <laughs> of Integrated Finance. Um, Generally, I oversee uh, all, all operative and uh, commercial aspects of the business. Uh, what does integrated finance do? Uh, we are a software as a service um, build and management platform for fintechs looking to launch uh, fintech products. You can kind of look at us as a as a, a core bank for young fintechs. Mm -hmm. We we have a, a a focus on getting fintechs connected to multiple banking as a service platforms and fintech friendly banks whereas some of the maybe larger players in the industry like mambu they w would typically focus on much larger uh, integrations to either the schemes themselves mm -hmm. or to tier one banks operating in multiple territories okay excellent so um you're helping support younger fintechs uh to connect to different financial service providers do you mind telling us a bit about what the journey would have been for a fintech um, prior to integrated finance launching and what problems you're solving um, through through the product sure well um, I suppose I can tell you a little bit about um, myself and the founders of integrated finances background because it's really our own problem that we were trying to solve it was um, it was our own uh, itch that we were trying to scratch, as it were. Yeah. So uh, we're second time uh, founders in the fintech space. The first time we went and got a license with uh, the UK regulator, the FCA, mm -hmm. to offer a financial service to small to medium enterprises. As a young fintech, we s struggled uh, to entice any tier one bank to work with us. Uh, and because we couldn't get a tier one bank to work with us, tip, uh, what that meant is we had to kind of do a patchwork knitting of of tier two banks yes. and uh, other fintech friendly services together in order to make it look and feel like our customers were just interacting with one financial entity. Uh, the problem we had when when doing that is uh, in say the the nineties and 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 the and the two thousands. You could partner with a tier one like Barclays and get access to fantastic uh, Great British Pound uh, payment infrastructure. Yes. Fantastic um, single European payment area infrastructure, SEPA, SEPA, instant, you name it. Yes. You could get access to uh, US dollars, uh, either via SWIFT or, or on the local market on, say, Fed or ACH. Yes. And they had built correspondent relationships with, with most of the tier one players in each jurisdiction. And so if you partnered with Barclays, you could effectively give all of Barclays services to your own customers. And then you would, uh, you would improve upon that service by targeting a particular vertical or sector of the market. Maybe, maybe they were getting weak exchange rates because they didn't have the volume to get a, a good exchange rate directly from the bank. Okay. Maybe it was a lending solution. Uh, maybe it was an international payments. You name it, it doesn't really matter. Um, as, a, as a young fintech, no bank wanted to touch us. We just presented too much risk and not enough reward for them. Yes. And so what we ended up doing was going to the, uh, uh, and I mean this with no disrespect, uh, banks that had very little international footprint, but they were they had a very compelling offering in their own jurisdiction. So we partnered with the likes of uh, ClearBank in the United Kingdom and got mm -hmm. a fantastic sterling offering. We partnered with a, a, a bank that powered a lot of fintechs uh, a few years ago. They no longer serve fintech now. That was Deutsche Handelsbank. Okay. We, we got access to Euroclearing. Uh, we ended up working with another bank in the United States to give them local access to the dollar market. And it, it was really a, a stitching together of all of these solutions to give our consumers a, a a 
a, a banking service that could compete against the tier one players in the market. Mm-hmm. But it was extremely difficult. Uh, the problem was with all of these integrations to different banks, uh, our integrations started taking longer and longer to develop, uh, execute and deliver because yes. more and more of the logic of that bank was being accommodated into the back end that we'd built. Yeah. So Before. yeah, we'd built a hodgepodge solution uh, of banks that were willing to support fintechs uh, precisely because we posed no risk to burning their correspondent banking relationship network. So I either the uh, the fintech didn't operate overseas, or, mm-hmm. sorry, the bank didn't o- operate overseas, so it had no dependency on a foreign currency to run its typical uh, operations. Yes. Or it had no correspondent banking relationships at all. So th- there was no exposure uh, that the fintech brought to uh, damage to, to that bank's uh, own revenue stream. Part of the problems with the uh, likes of Barclays, uh, Deutsche Bank, uh, JP Morgan, is they've got very large correspondent banking relationships. Yes. And you need those correspondent banking relationships to be able to establish global operations. Mm-hmm. If you don't have global operations, you will never be able to entice in the 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 blue chips, the multinationals, the megacorps. Yes. Apple isn't going to bank with Barclays in London if if it doesn't have uh, access to dollars. Yes. Apple will want the suite of currencies they need to operate worldwide with every bank in the world. Mm-hmm. And part of the a problem of FinTech pro- poses that bank is they, eff- they effectively delegate risk. If a bank says, I will work with you, say Revolut or, tra- or TransferWise, what they're really saying is, I trust you to, uh, use my payment rails in a responsible way. And the likes of Revolut and TransferWise are sufficiently staffed up, resourced, uh, and have the technological capacity to spot things like money laundering, Mm. fraud very quickly, whereas some of the younger fintechs in the space maybe don't have either the expertise or the capital to expend on non-revenue generating activities such as that. Okay. So so the risk for Barclays or Deutsche Bank to let a, a young fintech on their rails yes. is, is too high because if that fintech makes one small mistake, there's a very high chance that Barclays will have a, a correspondent, let's say, let's say JP Morgan or, or whoever their dollar clearer is. They're saying, yes, you've exposed our network to, uh, to money laundering. We're going to turn off your access to US dollars. Okay. If you turn off Barclays access to US dollars, you can kiss goodbye, you know, any NASDAQ, Fortune 500, FTSE 100, all of the big companies that currently depend on someone like Barclays to operate their global operations, yes, that would be kaput. And the 80-20 rule, banks will make 80% of their revenue from 20% of their clients. They don't yes. want to put that 20% of their clients at risk for the sake of a a young, untested fintech. Yeah. And um, back to the point I was getting at, that's what we were. We were a young, untested fintech. So we had to partner with banks who had no exposure to correspondent risk mm-hmm. and were willing to take a punt on uh, an increase in volume going through their network so they had larger deposits to uh, to be able to lend against Yes, by working with fintechs that had the capacity to attract a higher number of customers, whether that be B2C or B- B2B. Fantastic. Uh, um, so just, just to tie that one off, mm. having built all of these integrations probably quite poorly uh, by the end, we realized that there was this new layer of uh, fintech-friendly banking options called banking as a service. Yes. It's where a a more established uh, vendor like a currency cloud or a rails bank uh, mm. in the States you're getting, say, unit, bond, uh, companies that had poured more energy into ensuring that all of the sorts of things that a bank doesn't want to facilitate, such as potentially fraud, mm-hmm. Uh, money laundering, uh, non-compliance on client money regulations, all of, that, all of that sort of stuff. These banking as a service players were slowly abstracting that problem from the bank to mm-hmm. themselves. And they had the capacity to support younger fintechs without exposing the bank to the same level of risk. Yes. And um, 
we realized uh, uh, as founders of this fintech that there was nobody trying to ab abstract the differences between all of these banking as a service APIs yes. so that we could give one compelling either interface or, or technical gateway for these fintechs to be able to access this plethora of, of new technology. And, um, and ultimately, why did we start integrated finance? Uh, it was to solve the problem that we had when trying to integrate all of these BAS players just to get to market with, a, with either an MVP or a slightly more fleshed out product. Fantastic. So we covered a lot just then. Um, and uh, I think it's really important just to sort of compartmentalize it um, uh, to ensure that um, yeah, we can break it down in, in in a simple manner. I'm, you know, thinking, for example, if my parents are listening to the podcast, I, I want them to be able to understand. So um, the narrative was there were a lot of smaller fintechs, such as, you know, the previous company that you founded um, out in the market. Barclays and other large incumbents may have offered a very wide range of services when it comes to making bank transfers or holding foreign currencies. Uh, however, the risk for them um, to onboard smaller fintechs was too high and the smaller fintechs also had quite a large, let's say, integration burden on them. Um, uh, and so what, uh, you know, you guys did was build integrations to smaller banks um, uh, and then you realized actually if we build one let's say API or interface we could connect to all of these smaller banks as well as um, some of the banking as a service providers like Currency Cloud um, uh, and others um, to provide not just let's say the payment rails but also the um, uh, compliance and regulatory aspects, so um, KYC, anti-money laundering, um, and other regulatory um, uh, requirements um, would be fulfilled. So in terms of the benefits, you've got the FinTech reduces its integration time um, for multiple providers. They also uh, are assisted, let's say, with the regulatory and compliance um, pieces. The larger banks um, uh, or any bank involved, um, you know, knows that there's a particular quality standard that they're going to receive from any clients flowing through, let's say, integrated finance. Um, so their, let's say, counterparties, um, uh, you know, know that, things are going to be done in a compliant manner um, and uh, you know you really benefit because um, yeah you, you're able to open up a new a new part of the market uh, so although I wanted that to be a concise sort of uh, uh, summary it ended up being a bit longer than I wanted but would you agree with that sure so I, I guess the way to, to unpack it is um, what is the benefit for the consumer of, of the product um, we built this thing for ourselves badly in a previous life. The, mm -hmm. the venture was successful and we exited somewhat success, successfully. But really all we were trying to do was solve our own problem, which is how can we take our product live faster mm -hmm. without investing time in stuff that our customer doesn't care about? Yes. Um, we were losing sleep over how to ensure that the the accounts that we generated for our customers were going to be in our customer's name mm -hmm. so that when uh when you know sofa limited um, sofa limited was a made-up company i'm just uh pointing out what's in front of me in the studio when yes. sofa limited wanted to pay their invoice to a textile manufacturer in i don't know uh ireland or turkey yes textile manufacturer received the payment from sofa limited mm -hmm. uh instead of them receiving it from payments broker or PSP one or yes. or transfer X or, or, or whatever the name of the fintech supporting that transaction is. Mm -hmm. We uh, we would lose sleep over how can we onboard Sofa uh, Limited in a smooth and easy way that's not going to uh, that's not going to dissuade the the uh, financial controller or the FD or the CEO or the accounts payable clerk from completing this uh, onboarding journey that is quite intensive. We yes. lo we lost sleep over how do we give 
these guys fantastic exchange rates. Mm-hmm. And what we realized is um, our customer didn't care about the why, our customer didn't care about the the how, they cared about the output. They cared about the thing that they had touch points on. And what what does a customer have touch points on? It's it's an interface. So yes. we were we were pouring all of our energy into table stake stuff that didn't make us any different from a Barclays, that mm-hmm. di- didn't make us any different from a Revolut, didn't make us any different from a Chime or a or a Wise or uh, or a Starling Bank. We were yes. pouring all of our energy into just being able to do the same things as them. And by the end of it, we didn't really have a lot of uh, capital, will willpower, or or engineering resource to go and create some uh, to create the compelling reason for the customer to use what we'd build instead of what our competitors competitors were building. Mm-hmm. And so, it, boiling it down, all integrated finance is trying to do is to divert your attention, resource, and capital to where it matters. Yes. If you're starting a financial service, presumably there's a problem you've seen in the market mm-hmm. that needs to be solved. But if you expend all of your energy on just being compliant uh, regulatory, being compliant commercially, uh, protecting your client assets in the way that you're supposed to, converting currency in the way that you're supposed to, assigning a name to a bank account in the way that you're supposed to, you're going to have no, unless you're super funded, uh, Unless it was Adam Neumann starting a, uh, <laughs> a, a fintech today, yes. well, unless you're hyperfunded, you're you're going to invest all of your energy on something that isn't going to make you win your customer, and there's a fundamental um, problem with that equation. If you're if you're spending money on extremely important stuff, being compliant, uh, mm-hmm. ha- protecting your customers, you're not going to win customers. You need to be different from what's out out there in the market. And presumably, an entrepreneur doesn't wake up in the morning and go, oh, I'm going to start a payments company. Well, what's that payment company going to do? What problem is it going to solve? Yes. Uh, I didn't think about that. That's not how entrepreneurs work. They're usually worrying about the bleeding edge problem that's going to make a difference in this world. Mm-hmm. But having tried to start a revolutionary fintech, what what I understand is your resource quickly dries up on the stuff that customers don't care about. Okay. We're, we're trying to solve that problem fundamentally. Okay, fantastic. Yes, you you summarized that in a much more concise manner than I did, so so thank you. Um, and just in terms of solving that problem, um, do you want to just highlight how it is that the fintechs are connecting? Is it through one single API? You mentioned as well that they're able to, let's say, check their balances as well. Is there a separate API for um, ledgers and transactions? How, how does it work? Sure. So the the youngest, uh, hungriest, and uh, wanting to start fastest fintechs will uh, sit on top of our core, mm-hmm. and they'll often take our user interface. Yes. Uh, we always recommend to our customers, don't rely on that, because the more of our customers that use our user interface, by definition, the less differentiated you are. Yes. But for entrepreneurs new to the space, it can be a, a really helpful and effective way for them to get to market super quick and learn what what is it that their customers do and don't like about this type of an interface yes. and, and go and build your own out to make sure you're solving your own niche. Uh, slightly more seasoned entrepreneurs will often just take our core uh, and our APIs and they'll go and build their own interface themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and there's times where our interface makes absolutely no sense. If if you're launching an investment portal and you want to show your customers returns, mm. but you want to be able to generate accounts so that they can wire funds into, into that account, maybe participate in some investments, my system won't see how your investments are performing, so why the hell would you want to use my user interface? Yes. Whereas if you're maybe just generating a, a a more standard type of bank account, maybe with a bit of cross-border, or mm. user interface will uh, it will work just fine for that type of user. But largely, we say if you're going to use our user interface, use it as a launch pad to build your own because we are not going to be able to differentiate your product if you're depending on our front end. Okay. The most seasoned, so the most technically uh, astute, uh, will usually just use our APIs. 
So uh, Orcore has uh, the majority of functionality uh, exposed either for posting or, or pulling information from that core, as well as being able to initiate workflows on our APIs. Yes. Um, so some customers will just do API integrations. The vast majority will do API and use our, our core or back office. Mm -hmm. And some of the younger fintechs will take the interface too, with the user interface for their own customers. Okay, got you. And you touched upon um, uh, an investment management use case um, just then. Um, could we almost step away from fintechs and, and um, almost you know financial service uh, institutions as clients are there other use cases across say property management or, or, or other industries where integrated finance would be applicable uh, absolutely uh, the, the market in general is trending towards placing uh, existing financial services into places where they don't exist mm -hmm. um, there was a, a, a smarter guy than me uh, who I'm I'm kind of stealing that statement from but his definition of em embedded finance i can't for the life of me re remember his name but i'll, I'll find <laughs> it after so you can credit him in the comments yes he basically said embedded finance is the positioning of existing payment technology into circumstances where it doesn't exist mm -hmm. and um whilst we don't regard ourselves as uh, embedded finance we regard ourselves as an aggregator of tools uh, mm -hmm. to to launch financial services we have been approached by a much wider array of um of uh use cases than i than i first anticipated so there's a wealth manager who wants to uh, uh digitize an investor portal he's been handling investments into um from from say us investors into uh, African uh, SMEs in fintech wow. for four years. Now he wants to systematize or systematize that uh, by offering each of these investors their own account that they can pay into. Okay, uh, instead of a pooled, pooled it's instead of a, a pool, it, it it solves for the for the business because they can uh, reduce the headache of thousands of people paying into one account. Yes. but also they can add incentives to use that portal now because by as soon as you issue someone an account, mm. stickiness tends to trend up. Yes. Uh, they they long term they might use that account for other things if if that's within the um w within the allowed uh, uh, function of the service. But if you have an account with a balance on, people tend to log in to check what that balance is doing. Yeah. So and I, I mean just thinking out loud um uh for for another use case. Uh, these employers on record and umbrella companies like Deal, for example, you still need to enter a payment reference when you send your money away. Uh, uh, absolutely. So th th ultimately, um, so sometimes when I talk about this, it, people think, oh, wow, I never thought of that. You you did think of that. You're just uh, the framework or the lens through which you're you're listening to what I'm saying is is, is probably not attuned to what we're doing. It's bank account issuance yes think of the millions billions of people out there who have bank accounts what are they doing with those bank accounts yes there's going to be a high degree of trend and similarity but you can mm. do whatever the hell you want really um our use cases so the investment portal property managers are definitely interested in this because they can effectively issue an account per property that they rent and that reduces yes. the complexity of managing uh tenant refunds in uh, or or anything else mm -hmm. uh one of the most interesting use cases, uh, we were approached by a, a divorce law attorney based in Texas. Yes. And um, again, this is part of the embedded finance march. Uh, they realized that they, uh, post-settlement, uh, parent A and parent B, were mm -hmm. often coming back to them because uh, there was a, there was a, a, a constant challenge to, to managing the maintenance of, of child support payments and a number of other things. So mm -hmm. they wanted to uh, they wanted to uh, create an app that uh, would kind of diary share the child, so the parents could know would always know. Uh, okay, this is your week. This is my week. Yes. And then they realized, oh, we we can maybe add some kind of loyalty for uh, kids stationery, um, you know, he healthy food, uh, play areas. We can get discounts from 
from like le- leisure centers. Yes. And so uh, when they were thinking about how can we make this a more compelling and engaging tool for um, uh, recently divorced couples who have children, they thought, wouldn't it be great if we can create bank accounts for parent A and parent B and they yeah. can manage the childcare costs through that and they would have a a personal financial management tool to track it all uh and of course you know there's the the negative aspect of it where for one reason or another parent a isn't uh paying Mm -hmm. or even worse are paying and parent b is disputing the fact that they've received those funds often it would revisit the courts and the courts would have no way of validating who was telling the truth there because they they couldn't get access to those accounts without going through a, a lot of more litigation. Yes. So by being able to generate the accounts and give read-only access to an, an authority, the court, uh, all of those disputes in theory could disappear overnight. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I this is exactly where I go back to what I was saying a minute ago. If that Texas divorce law company spent time building ledgers, managing balances, working out how to assign parent A and parent B's name to a balance. Yes. The product would never go live, but there's so many fantastic tools out there uh, that you can connect to that you can really give a super compelling interface for any kind of niche right now. Yes. The problem isn't uh, a lack of choice anymore. The problem is potentially it's too much choice and difficult to validate which is the best tool. Mm -hmm. And integrated finance was was not a big part of this opportunity where where we uh came in to try and assist was they were great they were fine in the states but in the european market it was difficult to understand who could do what under what regulatory framework mm-hmm. and we acted as a as a consolidator of connectivity options to all of these um all of these different uh, ways of generating accounts managing payments and they and they went and uh focused on building a, a super compelling app uh, now, a lot of these ideas um, maybe don't come to fruition, but the fact that these these ideas are now uh, being allowed to flourish is is just a testament to the uh, the amount of growth in technological access to financial services that there's been in the last ten years. And certainly, I don't think integrated finance could have existed six or seven years ago yeah. because the APIs were not mature enough for to establish any kind of connectivity standards across them. That, those are some fascinating use cases. And, you know, I, what I really hope people get out of this is the fact that when you say fintech, people think about, you know, a cool app, for example, um, whereas this is, you know, some real powerful and meaningful um, uh, value that could be delivered, um, at, you know, across sort of society, uh, uh, if you were. Um, you, you know these APIs allowing um, you know lawyers to to audit child support payments without it going to the court. That you know that will save a lot of people, both in the public and private service, a lot of time. Um, you know people feeling more comfortable when they're investing money or paying their rent. Um, that you know that they're able to audit um, those payments themselves, um, which is uh you know fintech apps are all well and good but i think this is uh, this is the unspoken part of fintech that's not discussed enough yeah i i i definitely think like what is the end game for for most uh kind of supportive industries uh, when i say supportive industries uh a, a product or service that sits around an industry to enable that industry to happen Mm-hmm. The end game should be to get it done as, e- as efficiently as possible. So cost goes down, yes. time goes down. Yes. And the, th- the third thing, it, at least I think, is the behavior friction goes down. Yes. And so everyone in financial services understands that people don't want to log into a bank to mm-hmm. manage their financial services. They yes. want to be able to access the data where it's where it's most needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. They want to be able to p- perform activities where it's most needed, and um, I I think there's a uh, there'll be a big trend over the next ten to fifteen years where maybe not in the upper echelons of 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 the corporate world where you can 
hire teams and teams and teams of people to take care of this in the most efficient manner. But for but for everybody else, there should be an assumption that your financial service will be where you need it most. Yes. Um, I can't for the life of me figure out why uh, your bank account isn't connected to your inbox, for example. Yes. It would make total sense if you're a business at least uh, that your your financial app so if you were working with i don't know a barclays or a jp morgan or a, or a stripe or, or whoever it would be auto connected to your inbox because when somebody sends you an invoice how are they sending you that invoice yeah they're emailing it to you wouldn't it be fantastic if your inbox had connectivity with your bank so that you could hover over the payment click and yes. it would auto load the details for that payment yeah rather than you right. having to download uh the PDF, maybe open it up, open up your bank app, definitely type one or two uh, uh, m- missing digits or put a decimal place in the wrong place Yes, and uh, have either the payment fail, the wrong person receive it mm. uh, and, and claim that they didn't receive it in some cases. <laughs> that happens because you're, you're performing a task outside of the the zone where it's most effective mm-hmm. and I certainly think there's a huge march from financial service providers to get their service to where the consumer isn't having to change any behavior I- in their daily operation yeah absolutely and I, I think we're seeing that little by little in some areas so um, Receipt Bank which I think is now called Dext uh, took out a lot of that friction for expenses just take a photo of the receipt um, and OCR technology pulls that into zero, um, uh, and that can flow through the bank uh, for reconciliation. Um, but uh, there's still a, a lot of uh, innovation yet to come in that space. Um, so, Daniel, do you mind talking to us about your fundraising experience, particularly given that you, you know you launched during the pandemic, and we're moving towards another, um, or we're already in another difficult economic period so it'd be great to hear your thoughts about fundraising and and building during difficult times sure so we closed our uh our seed round uh, roughly about a year ago now um we were fortunate enough to get backed by uh fantastic investors uh octopus ventures were our lead uh the guys at 500 global have been immense for us as well yes and uh it's probably un- unfair to call them plucky, but uh, I'll, I'll give them a shout out. Uh, a, 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 a VC called Superseed that um, invests in early stage technologies that uh, have customers. Uh, all of those guys were uh, super fantastic to work with. Yes. Um, but they were one of a small pool of people that we'd uh, obviously approached to raise funds. And um, uh, our experience was... <sighs> Our experience was it's tough. Um, you're you're ultimately uh, trying to approach people that you've never met before uh, and convince them that you and your idea uh, are going to succeed. Not have a chance of success, but are going to succeed. And um, you you come up with a you come up against a, a lot of uh, outright negativity. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in some cases, your idea is stupid. This is never going to fly. You come up with a, a lot of ob- objective criticism, which is which is very helpful too. Uh, uh, and, and my favorite was some VCs will project what they want your product to do uh, onto your answers. Okay. And so h- half the time what you end up finding is you're, you either run with it and say, yeah, that's what we do. But the reality is, you know, this is not the investor for you. If, if, if they're already projecting... A, a vision of your product that is um, uh, tangential or or in the opposite direction to your own. Yes. But uh, the, the main experience, I'd say, is it's sales. Um, it, uh, it, when, when you're a, a seed stage company, you've got very little to, uh, you've got very little data to um, give independent validation to your idea. Uh, you don't have uh, years of... Uh, uh, upward trajectory or, or downward trajectory to, to show what your business is performing like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have a, a large customer base for people for them to be able to go and, and validate what is this product like. You don't have a huge number of employees that they can go on Glassdoor and uh, find out what are the employees saying. Yes. So 
so it's it's, it's a numbers game. Um, getting out there, putting energy into uh, uh, making sure that you've got access to the people who might be interested in your space, yes. and then and then convincing them that it is the right solution. Uh, probably the biggest bit of advice I could give to a founder is if you're going to do this, und- understand uh, momentum. Uh, if you close five deals in uh, in the first month that you're talking to the VC, irrespective of uh, what you're doing, they're going to be interested in learning more. Yes. However, if it, if it's a three month due diligence process and nothing happens in the second and the third month, all of a sudden you're a lot less exciting. Mm-hmm. Now, if you imagine that exact same story, you had one customer in the first month that you spoke to them and five customers by the end of of that exact same window, yes, you still have the same number of customers, but now you're demonstrating trajectory, growth, excitement, mm-hmm. and so uh, having that having that growth is fundamental to the success of your business anyway, VC yes. or no. But if you're engaging with uh, uh, outside uh, capital, you better damn well make sure that your business is exciting whilst you're talking to them and beyond. Okay. Uh, if if you hit a, a rough patch when you're talking to VCs, it's you're almost dead in the water. Yeah. So that's that's very interesting in terms of using momentum and almost timing some of that traction um uh to when you're fundraising uh in order to to communicate that back to the VCs and maybe ask for more money or, or get better terms on the sheet. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I, I want to be super clear. I'm, I'm not saying uh, sandbag deals. If you're a startup, you're only hurting yourself if you're doing that. You need to be growing as fast as humanly possible. Mm. Uh, what I am suggesting, though, is if you're going through a, a period of, I don't know, technical consolidation, yes. uh, re- rewriting code that you know you need to rewrite um, for the for the business to be able to scale, uh, if you're uh, planning on hiring uh, and that is temporarily d- d- distracting from uh, growth objectives, yes, those are not the, t- the right times to uh, approach a funding. Mm-hmm. The, that is the right time for execution. Yes. And uh, we get approached by a lot of VCs who I would be interested in talking to, but not right now because yes. I've got to focus on delivering on my quarterlies, delivering on this year's objectives mm-hmm. to ensure that the business is ready to take any kind of capital injection in future. Getting yes. Taking money when you're not ready for it, taking money when, uh, taking money when the business isn't ready for it is, is pretty stupid in all honesty. So focus on your business, do what you need to do to get the business ready for scale, then execute on the scaling those are the times to approach uh, for for funding. Okay, that's if you've got the um, uh, the good fortune to be able to time it. Uh, if you're a if you're a struggling founder, you can potentially just ignore everything that I said. And if you need that cash, you've got to go and uh, you got to go and hunt for it. Okay, so those are really good tips for the fundraising part. But what about once they've raised the capital? Do, do you have any sort of tips um, on the deployment of the capital, maybe diving into, say, metrics? We've seen a lot of companies go on a sort of growth-at-all-costs trajectory previously. Um, now, I suppose, they've fallen almost out of favour. People aren't judging companies by how many employees they're going to hire over the next 6 to 12 months um, or the number of customers um, that they're... they're they're onboarding each day. There's a lot more of a focus on, say, customer acquisition costs. What are your views on on metrics and the deployment of capital? Sure. So um, uh, I know we had a, a, a chit chat about this a, a little while back, and I, I gave you a silly analogy, but I'll probably use it again. Sure. Um, the main thing I w- want to make the founder aware of is understand the market that you find yourself in. Yes. Um, in uh, in expanding economies there is a, a, a kind of a winner takes all strategy, uh, mm-hmm. a grow at all costs and whoever, th- the last last person standing will either just gobble up the market uh, from a consumer or perspective mm-hmm. or they'll gobble up their competitors. Yes. Uh, uh, obviously, we've got a, a anti-monopolistic laws in place to stop that from being too damaging, but it, it's 
just a, a fact of the matter the larger you get sometimes to acquire a larger share you you'll take some of so, some of your customers yes um but un- understand the market that you're in is it is it a uh, a a a market flooding with capital mm-hmm. or is it a market uh, dry like the desert and so the the example i gave you last time i think was uh, l- look at look at it in the natural world mm-hmm. um what do you see happen in a jungle where uh, resources for growth are abundant so sunlight nutrients uh and um and rainfall all of those things are, are abundant and so what happens everything goes grows sky high but mm-hmm. why is it growing sky high to squeeze more of those resources uh out of their competitors and into themselves yes trees grow bigger roots so it commands m- more uh, more of the nutrients from the soil and yes. m- and more of the water trees go grow higher so that they're the ones that capture the sunlight mm-hmm. that is the uh that is the fight for survival in a uh, in a high resource market mm-hmm. but in contracting markets where your resource and I'll use the natural uh, example again uh where maybe water is is not easily available maybe there's a lack of topsoil mm-hmm. uh maybe the uh nutrients in the ground aren't that good so for example a desert Mm. what type of uh what type of plant or animal do you see proliferate out there well the, one of the obvious kind of token ones is a cactus yes cactus uh are extremely efficient with resources mm. they can go a long time without a capital injection water uh, yes. they can survive in relatively uh, dry earth where the, there's not an abundance of say customers Uh, my analogy does fall down on the uh, on the sunlight aspect but we're, <laughs> but we're just going to have to uh give me some artistic license for that uh, and so in in the non-natural world in a, a deeply unnatural world uh, a limited company a or 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 a or a plc or or an inc or whatever you are in a in effectively a a, a imagined organization a corporation you have exactly the same things yes. uh expanding markets grow at all costs hire as many employees as you can to ensure that your product is in better shape and constantly improving compared to your competitors in a contracting uh, economy where resources are becoming more and more scarce ensure that what you are doing with uh, your resource is for for the health of the long term of the company crucially yes. uh, the first thing you need to ensure is survival mm-hmm. if you don't survive you will never uh, be able to get through the uh, survive till the good times mm. and um and just just being a little bit more careful about your capital and understanding you're raising from people who want to hear that you uh, are thinking about the worst case scenario because yes. no, nobody wants to invest x into a company that splurges it all at the wrong time and mm. goes bust you know a, a, a year before the um uh the the good times were rolling in again absolutely and just thinking uh, about sunlight i i think sunlight could be interest because there's always interest in products whether it's in a good time or a bad time but interest doesn't necessarily correspond to then you know um uh you know let's say water um so yeah the sunlight doesn't correspond to water or you know capital being around or the topsoil being correct um so uh hopefully that's uh yeah that can that rounds it out <laughs> yeah um so look Dan uh you know we've covered a lot today about what integrated finance does um particularly around uh you know the APIs um that help uh, uh fintechs and you know businesses from other verticals um to create accounts complete KYC checks um we touched upon the 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 ledgers the transactional ledgers at uh, ledgers um uh and you know you you've also provided us with some insights into fundraising uh and the importance of momentum when fundraising and how to survive um a contracting market really focusing on being a cactus um in order you know to conserve resource um i just want to check if there's anything else that you want to add about integrated finance at this stage sure uh, i th- i think my description of it was uh, 
rather meandering at times, mainly because of the focus on why we why we started it in the first place. But just to hammer home, uh, we are we're a core that connects to banking as a service platforms and mm-hmm. the auxiliary tools that a, a entrepreneur needs in order to uh, go to market. Mm-hmm. And being specific, we we get you to market with all of the table stake stuff that is necessary for you to go live. Yes. But it's not going to give your customer a reason to use you. We that's where we want you to pour your energy. So w- what do you need to go live? Most fintechs want to present bank-like experiences. So mm-hmm. uh we connect to uh account issuers, uh Currency Cloud, Rails Bank, Clearing Bank, LHV uh, and another of other partners who enable the generation of a bank account for uh, an end user whether it's a business or an individual yes we speak to processors uh if you want to uh create cards and debit those accounts through processors mm-hmm. uh w- one of uh one of our uh, preferred partners that we're uh, working on building an integration with right now is, is gps mm-hmm. uh, but taking a step earlier than that we also do the validation of the uh, individual that you might want to provide this financial service to so we have um ongoing relationships with a number of KYC providers in the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you've KYC'd them, uh, uh, generated an account in our system and p- potentially used one of our partners to to issue a, a debit card, mm. you're probably going to mo- want to monitor the behaviors of that individual because yes. even if even they're not a, uh, a, a bad actor on, uh, on account creation, it doesn't mean they might not become a bad ac- actor afterwards. So... We um we are currently building an integration with Comply Advantage for for a lot of the features that they help to mitigate the risk of, of use of those accounts. Yes. Um, uh, and like boiling it all down, we generate accounts. Mm-hmm. We allow you to make payments in and out of those accounts through the banking as a service platform of your choice, mm-hmm. or 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 banking as a service platforms mm-hmm. as it, uh, of your choice. We handle currency exchange. So if you're generating an account in euros and sterling. Perhaps you want to offer a service where someone can convert or a system will process all of the logic that allows that one to happen and two for you to generate a revenue on it. Mm-hmm. And then we orchestrate the flow where you're sending data across multiple institutions, whether it's uh, onboarding, then generate account, then release payment and then screen the payment. Yes. We orchestrate the the information that flows through your system so that all of those disparate systems can work in sync. Fantastic. Uh, and the idea, it, the idea is, we worry about that, so you can give a reason for your customer to need all that. Yes, excellent. So you're really helping them go full circle. You're helping yeah. the fintechs go full circle and focus on, you know, why they want to serve customers. Exactly. I aggregate the ingredients and assemble them. You worry about what the ultimate recipe. Uh, of those ingredients is going to be we'll just make sure they work excellent excellent and dan any any final takeaways for founders or cfos or you know even people who aren't necessarily founders um uh that are watching the podcast sure so uh i I suppose a couple of things uh we are one of um uh our, our business has four founders and um the the most natural thing you can do uh, when there's four founders is go, okay, 25, 25, 25, 25 of the company. Mm-hmm. But that's a really stupid thing to do. Um, you need, if you're going to go into business with people, you need to be able to have hard discussions yes. with each of the most important people in making that company a success. Mm-hmm. So uh, have the hard discussions uh, early. Is one founder going to be putting in money and the rest are going to be taking sweat equity? Is one going to be doing this full time and the other is going to be doing it part time? Um, what do we think the independent value of everyone uh, is and what can they bring to the business? You need to have those discussions so that you get some kind of alignment on uh, on ownership structure. Yes. Because I've seen so many um, founders get into you know rap- rapidly deteriorating relationships with their co-founders because one person feels he should be getting more or one person feels somebody else should be getting less. And yes. it, and those are probably fair assumptions, but you need to have those discussions before you go into business with somebody. Mm. Uh, if uh, if you 
allow those sorts of things to go unaddressed from day one. Yes. You're asking for a deterioration of trust in the most important components of your business for you to be successful. So one, sort out your cap table and don't just go 50-50 if you really think it's not 50-50. Yes. And then the second thing is if you are a sole founder, again, you can ignore everything I said there because you get 100%, but it's extremely tough. Uh, Entrepreneurship is, it's basically an uphill battle. Uh, Mm. There's an assumption that founders... um, have the life of Riley and they can command armies of people to do stuff for them. The reality mm. is it's an inverted pyramid where all of the problems roll down to the founders. Yes. And yeah. so uh, ensure you have somebody who understands your problem that you can confide in and uh, blow off some steam with. Mm. Uh, I've certainly benefited from the two uh, companies that I founded in in moments of high stress, being able to offload on someone, crucially, who understands the problem. Um, yes. My wife is fantastic, uh, but often if I'm having a a, a a stress on a mundane detail that 99% of the people would have no clue on yeah. and the remaining 1% would have no clue on without context, it's important to be able to offload on, on that 1% and, and try and get, get some of their advice, uh, be able to explain your problem and have someone understand it. Mm. Uh, that's why a lot of uh, founders get mentors and coaches. Yes, yeah. Um, find someone that you can blow off that steam with and uh, add, make sure that you don't um, overburden yourself with your own problems. Yes, fantastic. Look, two very, very uh, good takeaways um, about you know the cap table structure and aligning uh, all of the founders. And I think, yeah, mentorship, um, and uh, you, you know, almost coaching, let's say, for sole founders is something that doesn't get enough um, airtime um, uh, because, yeah, you don't want to just surround yourself with people who say yes or, you know, that's a great idea. Uh, I think mentoring and coaching um, is a very good opportunity um, for constructive criticism um, and different perspectives to be shared. Um, particularly when it comes to understanding, you know, smaller niche problems. Absolutely. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, It's been fantastic. And, uh, you know, anybody interested in in learning uh, uh, more from Dan, um, I would certainly recommend reaching out to him. He's a very approachable fellow. Yeah, uh, absolute pleasure as always, Lucas. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. Thank you, Dan. Cheers.